don't know what you call it. <laughs> Steve said no. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, a little farther, please. <laughs> good one, good one. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> oh, man. It's going to be my pulpit today, just so you know. All right, Isaiah 41. <laughs> We're actually going to uh, not be able to make it through the whole chapter today. We're going to get the beginning and the end of it. And uh, the middle, which I really want to preach on today, we'll have to wait till next week. I want to remind you of the situation that's going on in this passage. I want to remind you that when we moved from chapter 39 through 40, we went from, from the people of Israel, Judah, who are in their own land, who are in the place where, that God had given to them. And Isaiah the prophet was speaking to those people in his day, and then he moves 150 years in the future and speaks to a people who had not been even born yet, who are a long ways off. And the people he's speaking to are those who are now in exile. And I want to remind you that these people that they are living amongst are a people of idols. They are living in a sea of idols. Idols were everywhere. There were many gods. The atmosphere, the air they breathed was idolatry. And you need to understand that. In addition, the people of God had experienced the worst thing they had ever experienced. The only thing that's worse than what they had experienced would happen in 70 AD. But up to this point and up to this time, they had experienced incredible Awful experiences. They had been through incredible tragedy. And so the people of God would understandably be tempted to be in great despair at this time. And so God's primary concern here is to encourage, to comfort, to strengthen his people and let them know that God had not forgotten them. In chapter 41, God is going to continue to bring comfort. And I want you to understand that as we open up this chapter, as we heard these words, you might wonder, this is a strange way to bring comfort. And uh, I want you to understand that he does bring comfort, but in a different way than we would probably at first imagine. God is going to bring comfort, comfort um, to his people through reminding them in a contest with the idols that he is the supreme God. What we see here is a contest between the idols of the day and the true supreme living God. God is going to prove that the idols are nothing and that God is the supreme God. And that would bring the greatest comfort to a people who are in exile, who are living amongst a sea of idols. This is going to be the contest of the century. And we're going to find out who is the supreme God. And I want to remind you, I want to remind you that Christians do not ever have to fear contests. We don't have to fear 
We don't have to struggle with whether God is going to turn out on the right side. You know, God himself here is inviting the contest. God is challenging the nations. God is bringing them together and challenging them to prove that he is God. You know, truth will always triumph. God has nothing to hide. God brings it out in the open. We have nothing to fear. Truth will triumph. Our God reigns. He is supreme. I want you to look at verse 1, and I want you to see the setting that God is assembling everyone to the contest. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want us to look at the verse here. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. So, first of all, who is assembling? And notice the word coastlands there. And we read that, we probably don't understand exactly what it's, I didn't understand exactly what that meant. But that refers to the far ends of the earth. So he's saying all the nations, everywhere, far, far as you can go, assemble together. God is calling them to assemble, to draw near. And what are they assembling for? And notice they're assembling to court. There is a judgment that's going on here. And we need to understand this isn't the final judgment, condemnation here, that we're dealing with. This is a court meeting for judgment in the sense of making a decision. That's what's going on here. There's a, there's a matter that's going to be settled. And that matter is, who is the supreme God? That's what this course setting is to determine. So what are the ground rules? You know, God is the one who sets up the ground rules, right? God is the one who does that. And he says here, notice what he says here. This is, this is awesome. God says, you be quiet and I'm going to speak. <laughs> And really, that is how we should always approach God, right? We should approach him in silence. We need to listen to our God. He is the one who speaks. And we are the ones who shut our mouths and open our ears and say, Speak, O Lord. (laughs) Remember Job. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I'll proceed no further. Job had nothing to say. He was done. When he saw God, he had nothing else to say. How about the great wise Solomon? He says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. We draw near to listen. Draw near to hear. Then he says you're to renew your strength. In other words, what he probably means by that is get right with me. Is find your strength in me. Um, According to Isaiah 40, that's what he speaks in the same language is used there. Um, But either way, God is very gracious here. God is very gracious here. And then he says, then you can talk. If you have something to say. And I want to remind us that God is the one who has the right to set up the contest. God has the right to determine how it's going to be set up and how it's going to be done. Because he is God. He is always right and he is always just. I want to give a couple quick details here for understanding this contest that I think might be helpful. God is not only the judge, but he's also the one who's making the main argument. Right? In God's people, Israel, you might wonder, where are they? And I think they are probably the witnesses. They're watching what's unfolding because this is really for them. 
And we are missing, we're not going to address verses 8 through 20, I believe, today. And that is, the, that is the application of what this means for God's people. But we will get there next week. So have you ever watched those TV competitions to see who's the best? They have so many different ones now, I think. They have the best chef, the best singer, and many other ones. I don't even know them all. Right? They're trying to figure out who is the best at these things. And here is a contest, a much greater contest, a much more significant contest. A contest that God's people need to hear today to find out who is supreme over all. Are the idols gods? Can they do anything? Or is God the supreme one of the universe? And how do you even argue that? How do you even know who's the supreme God of the universe? In some ways, if, if you remember, um, Elijah versus the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. Remember, that was a, a grand contest. It was God versus this multitude of Baal prophets. And God mocks them. God mocks them. And he ends up winning. And he ends up showing them that he is supreme, as he always does. So what is the point of this? What is the point of this contest? What is God trying to show us? It is not possible for him to lose. He doesn't care to entertain us. He doesn't need to prove anything. In fact, what he's really doing is stooping down to our level. For our good and for our benefit. God doesn't need to do this. So why is he doing this? And certainly one purpose is to expose the futility of false gods by comparing the idols to the greatness of the almighty God in order to show how uncomfortable the idolaters should feel. Right? The idolaters need to be exposed for their for the condition they are really in. They are in a very bad place. But also, and I think this is really the main point, I think a greater purpose is to magnify the greatness of God by comparing him to the futile idols in order to show how comfortable and safe and in a good place we are when we are under the Almighty God. (laughs) We are in a good place. And verses 8 through 20 expounds on that. That God's people are in the best place they could possibly be in if we, if we are under the Almighty God in His favor and under His dominion. Our God is no competition and He is for us. And that should be the greatest comfort we could ever experience. So this is a good competition. This is a good contest. God is very gracious to us in giving it to us. So in verses 2 through 3, God takes His stand to present His case as the supreme ruler. And God makes His case by asking a series of questions that lead us to understand who is the supreme ruler. All right. So these questions are supposed to show us whoever is the answer to these questions, that person or that thing is the supreme ruler. All right. So let me read verses 2 through 4. Who stirred up the one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with the sword, like driven stubble, With his bow, he pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling generations from the beginning? So the question is who fits this description? Who is like this? Who is the one who calls this person from the east? And the answer is Cyrus, right? God is talking about 
Cyrus, but the answer isn't really Cyrus. <laughs> the answer is who is the one who raises Cyrus up? Who is the one who's in charge of history? Who's the one who's determining how history is being played out? Who's the one behind history? Who's the one whose purposes are being played out in all events of history? In particular, the rising up of Cyrus who will deliver God's people. Now his name is not mentioned yet, but this is clearly talking about Cyrus. We will mention his name later. But notice Isaiah is speaking hundred and some fifty years in the future, talking about a deliverer who will come, telling us the future. And he's asking, who is the one who knows these things? Who is the one who determines the future? Who is the one who is guiding it to fulfill his purposes and can tell us what's going to happen? You see, whoever is in charge of history and its purposes is God. Whoever is the absolute authority over the nations, that is God. Whoever rules the world and its affairs is God. This is how you determine who God is. Whoever can foretell what is going on and what is going to happen is God. Whoever is sovereign over all events, he is God. <laughs> this is basically 101 of the nature of the supreme God, right? Whoever meets this criteria is God and whoever does not is not God. It just makes sense. So who, who is this? Who is this one we're talking about? Who is the one who does these things? And I want to almost imagine a pregnant pause here. He just said, who is this? Who does these things? For this person is the supreme God. And then a pause. It doesn't say there's a pause, but I'm imagining it. Then all of a sudden, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. God says, I am the one who is in complete charge of all of history. I am bringing it out to fulfill my purposes. Nothing happens apart from my purpose and my will. I am directing it. I am carrying it along. I am the originator. I am the beginner. I am the initiator. I am the one who carries it along to fulfill its purposes. I work all things out to fulfill my righteous ends and goals. I purpose, I begin, and I carry out all things to fulfill my will. He is therefore behind all events. If you remember last week, and this is so important about God, God stands above creation. He is beyond creation. He is outside of creation. And that's how we know he's God. Nothing else stands outside creation except for God. He is eternal, had no beginning and no end. And he never changes. I am he, says the Lord. In verses 5 through 7, notice the nations are given an opportunity to respond to this God. It is your move, nations. Here's your opportunity to make your case to God. So how might the nations respond? Well, the couple of responses they could make, right? They could bend, bow the knee to God. They could admit defeat and just say, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Can they really compete with this almighty, world-directing God? Can they meet the criteria that God expects right here. So notice their response. Their response is terror and fear. Verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. So here, here they come to God. They are brought into this assembly, this meeting. And their response, when they see this 
all-powerful God is to tremble and fear. Well, that is the only right response, isn't it? You know, this is exactly how anybody would respond in the presence of God. You look throughout the Bible and people fall on their knees. Remember Isaiah in chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am undone. <laughs> right? This is the response to God. Sometimes we think we would be like, yeah, you know, give, give, our, give someone a high five and get all excited. Finally, we've seen him. But that's not at all how anybody would respond. You see, not only is God great, but the nations recognize, and this is, this is the kicker, right? The nations recognize that they are at odds with this God. No wonder there's trembling and fear. So what do they respond? How do they respond in light of this terror? Do they gather to warn one another and to speak the truth to one another? Better get right with this God, right? Better quickly make things right. The answer is no. In response, out of fear, they do something that makes absolutely no sense. They come together, they gather together with one another in their rebellion and they comfort one another. They comfort one another. Everyone helps his neighbor, verse 6, and says to his brother, be strong. So the response to this is to help and encourage one another. You can, you can imagine the nations coming together and encouraging one another, be strong. You got this. You're going to be okay. Don't worry. Don't be fearful of your condition before God. Everything's fine. Sounds like the false gospel that many give today. How many people go out there and tell you God loves you, there is nothing to fear, God loves you just the way you are in your rebellion? They probably wouldn't say in your rebellion. But that's the message some people give and they assume that it's the gospel. That is not the gospel. God's just wrath is hanging over our heads. We need, to re we need to turn to him. We need to repent. That is God's love for us, isn't it? That God has given us an answer in his Savior, Jesus Christ. That is love. God does love you. He has sent his Savior to deliver you from his wrath and into your fa his favor. So what is the basis of their comfort? And the answer is they have none. This is, this is kind of like a pep rally. You know, you say a bunch of nothing, but you say, be comforted, be encouraged. Hurrah, right? They comfort each other, but give no basis for it. And this is exactly what the world does. They say, you're in a good place, you're blessed, you have nothing to fear. And this is because they have nothing to say. They have no basis to base themselves on. So how do they try and protect themselves from the terror of the Lord? And notice this. We are going to learn so much about the nature of idolatry here. This is an incredible passage about what idolatry is all about. The only alternative to bowing the knee to God is to build idols. And idols are replacement gods. To protect ourselves and shelter ourselves from the terror of the Almighty God. The only alternative here is to protect ourselves and to shelter ourselves under a man-made God. An idol. Something to try to make ourselves feel better under. Notice verse 7. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with a hammer. Him who strikes the anvil, Saying of the soldering. It is good. And they strengthen it with the nails. So that it cannot be moved. 
So what do they do here? They refuse to bow, so they try to find a substitute. And they create their own image, their own idols. He finds the best craftsmen, right? I mean, can we give them some credit there? They find the best craftsmen they could find, right? He has the best human skills available, and he makes the idol out of the best material available. Gold! How are we doing? They strengthen the image maker, right? Notice there's a piling on of the word strengthen here. It's as if God is saying there's an ironic thing going on here. They strengthen the one who's making the image by voicing their approval of his works. They say, good job, well done. You're doing a great job, man. Keep going. You're making a real nice replica of God out of that metal. Then they put on the finishing touches by strengthening the image. Not only do they strengthen the image maker, but they have to strengthen their idol. Is that ironic or what? They have to keep the idol from moving. They don't want it to fall over. They don't want something bad to happen to it. So they have to keep it together and strong. You know, they are from creation and are therefore just as needy as all of creation is. They need to be strengthened. So we ask, really? Is this your comfort? Is this your safety? Is this where you're turning to? Is this where you're going to find protection? This is madness. It sounds like the futility of the mind that Paul speaks of in Romans 1, verse 21 through 23, that man's mind has become corrupt that God has given us over to our futility. We cannot make sense of anything. When we exchange God for idols, we become fools. You know, we make idols today, don't we? Do we make idols? We make idols today. They're just more sophisticated. We might try to escape reality through the idol of pleasure. We might try to escape reality through drugs, through entertainment through alcohol. We might try to find security and protection. We might come under the shelter of money, of a job, of a husband or a wife or a child or our family. Even good things can become idols. We might find security in a religious system. We might try to find shelter under any kind of religious system that makes us feel okay and safe. Whatever we replace with God is an idol. It is a, a God substitute. It is a replacement. It is a saying that this is what's going to save me. This is my Savior. This is going to bring me to safety. This is going to give me comfort. And so God is giving us insight into idolatry and telling us what it's all about. It's almost like God putting us in the mind of the idolater. The only alternative to bowing to God and coming under His favorable care and protection is to create our own protection and our own care and our own way of either denying the reality that's around us or of finding something to come under. And to do this, we must make cheap substitutes to protect us. Idolatry is whatever we come under for protection in the place of God. It's a savior replacement. And I know we just said that, but I want you to understand this is what idolatry is. When I think of idolatry, I imagine those in Noah's day, okay? 
Imagine if you were there. And imagine if God said, judgment is coming from above. And the only hope is for you to go into that ark that I have crafted for you. And only in there can you find safety from my judgment. And that ark is a great picture of Christ, by the way. We run to Christ, right? It's only escape, only hope in the judgment that's coming to us. But imagine if you said, you know what? I don't want to bow to God's way. I don't want to go his way. I am going to put on floaties. I got my own floaties. I've made them. They're going to be good. How is that going to do for you when the floods of God's judgment come your way? But that's what idolatry is, isn't it? Idols are like blowing up my floaty for for protection against the wrath of God. And we can easily be fooled into thinking that our idols are working because things are going well. Imagine before the flood, everyone's like, this is stupid, Noah. (laughs) This is ridiculous. What are you talking about? I don't see any rain, you know? And that's the way we think sometimes. But instead, what that really is, is God's gracious patience in our lives. That doesn't mean things are going well. That means God is being gracious with us, impatient with us. And that's why the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Run to Christ. We don't know if we'll have tomorrow. Your idols are not working. God is just gracious with you. You might think, if only I could give irrefutable evidence to the nations, if I can give the case that God is the supreme ruler of the universe, then surely the nations would respond, wouldn't they? But what do we see here? Evidence is good, but it will never win anyone's heart on its own. You see, Evidence is not bad. And God uses evidence as one of his means sometimes to change people's hearts, for sure. But ultimately, the heart needs to be changed first. If the heart is not changed, all the evidence in the world cannot change anybody. I'm not saying evidence is bad, it's good. But a heart is what needs to be changed, or no one will ever be saved. The heart is at enmity with God. The heart does not love God. The heart loves everything else. The heart is an idol factory. The truth is that God has given everyone irrefutable evidence holding us accountable that there is a supreme God. Listen to Romans 1 verse 20. I mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made So they are without excuse. Every time we see a flower growing, every time we see the birth of a new child into this world, every time a great disaster hits us and we see how small we are, God constantly reminds us everywhere we go that we are small and insignificant and that there is a supreme ruler God whom we are going to stand and give account to someday. And we are accountable to that. And then in verses 8 through 20 that we won't look at today, God turns from the idol makers and their terrible unsafe condition. And what does he do? He turns to his servants and their contrasting safe condition who are under his authority and his power and his goodness. And we will deal with this next week. 
But I want you to look ahead now at verses 21 through 29. God once again resumes the court session. (laughs) It's very similar to verses 2 through 4. And he challenges the idols of the nation to once again give proof that they are God's. Before he turns to prove that he alone is the supreme God once again. He furthers the argument. In verses 21 through 24, notice, God challenges the idols head on. He gives an open invitation. He says, make your case before me. Show me that you can do anything at all. (laughs) Bring your proof. Act like God. Verse 21, "Set set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. And so we ask, once again, what kind of proof could possibly win an argument here? What would be acceptable? And God explains in verses 22 through 23. Notice how God sets up the standard. Notice what God requires as proof to be God. God is telling us what it means to be God here. And it's important for us to understand who God is in his nature. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. So he says, okay, make sense of the future in light of the past. Tell us the future. Not only make sense of the future, tell us there's a pattern, there's a plan, there's a purpose. Things are working out to fulfill a purpose. And tell us what it is, but also tell us what's going to happen in the future. Go ahead. Tell us what's going to happen in the future. If you are God, if you are the supreme God, if you are truly God, then you can do this. Otherwise, you're not God. Interpret history for us and tell us what's going to take place. In other words, tell us that you're the independent ruler of the cosmos. Because that's what you have to be to be God. Prove that you're transcendent, that you're outside of time. Prove that you are truly God. Well, God knows the idols, doesn't he? And he knows the idols can't do anything. So he mocks them. He says, go ahead, okay, okay. (laughs) Then at least do something. Do something either good or do something bad. (laughs) Do something at all, like move an arm, move a finger. Do anything, do good or do harm. That we may be dismayed or terrified. And what he says is this. You are junk. You are nothing. The idols are absolutely nothing. You know, God forbid that I should boast in a piece of wood. Behold your God, nations. They can do absolutely nothing because they are nothing. You know, it's not that people never claim that their gods are telling the future. Did you know that? That there are many, many um, prophecies that so-called gods made in the Old Testament, right? That, that, that if you look at, at the, the history of the world, you'll find that many of them made different prophecies. But they're vague. <laughs> they're vague. For instance, um, a king once came and asked for wisdom, or not wisdom, about the outcome of a conflict he was going to have with Cyrus. And I'm not going to even mention his name because I can't pronounce it. And the answer was, a mighty empire will be destroyed. So he interpreted that to mean, I will be victorious. But after that, he went out and was decisively crushed by Cyrus. And so, in a sense, he kind of wanted his money back, you can imagine, right? 
So he went back to the gods or the priests of the gods who apparently spoke for them. And he was told that this oracle was saying that the other people would gain the great victory. <laughs> that they were not wrong. You just got the wrong side. <laughs> they never told him what empire would be destroyed. He therefore did not get his money back. But do you see how foolish that is? So God gives the final verdict of the idols in light of the challenge in verse 24. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, and abomination is he who chooses you. Imagine the judge, you're, you're at one of those contests, right? Where who's the greatest baker, or who's the greatest this, right? And at the end of it, they often have the time where the judges come out, and they award the winner, right? So imagine the idols and the idol makers are over here, and here comes the judge. He's going to make the final verdict. How did they do? Did they succeed? Well, he says, first of all, the idols never even showed up. They are nothing. This is like the biggest letdown, isn't it? They could do nothing at all, independent of their master. This wasn't even a contest. They could have at least brought out their B team, right? But that's not it. They're not just nothing. They are also an abomination. They're an abomination. Anything that is attributed honor that belongs to God to anything outside of God, is an abomination. The idols themselves are an abomination. God does not just not like idols. He hates idols. But worst of all, and as you can imagine, can it get worse than this? Not only are they an abomination, the idols, but those who choose them are an abomination as well. They are just like the idols that they make. You know that saying, you are what you eat? Well, in this sense, you are what you worship. Those who make them become like them. That's what Psalm 115, verse 4 through 7 says. He says, they have eyes but don't speak, ears but don't hear. And then in verse 8 it says, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Is that offensive? Well, that's what God says. That's what God says. In verses 25 through 29, the last few verses we'll look at today, God himself takes up the challenge and proves that he is God by telling what will take place in the future. So God makes this incredible claim that he is directing all of history for his purposes. God stands behind all of history. He's directing it all according to his purposes. He alone is therefore the one who can tell the future, who knows the future, who interprets it for us. Praise God for his word. Um, Two-thirds, I, I, I read, of the Old Testament is historical narrative, is, is just telling us events. And what we see is God's hand, is God's purpose throughout all of it, fulfilling his purposes. This is not perchance. This, this is not meaningless. History has a meaning. History has a purpose. And it's God's purpose. And so he demonstrates through this through the example of Cyrus, who is good news for his people, that he is the supreme ruler. He will defeat the Babylonians, Cyrus will, and bring back his people to their land. God is stirring him up. That is good news for God's people. And Cyrus is the unnamed conqueror here. Verses, chapter 44, verses 24 through 57, they will actually mention him. Or 27, I should say. 24 through 27. So the point is that the idols fail, but the true God succeeds. God alone meets the standards. God alone is God. 
If something cannot tell you the history or direct it, if someone is not standing behind it, they are not God. This is an absolute standard for being God. You can understand why liberals are so passionate to claim that this must have been written by someone else than Isaiah. (laughs) You see, there's such a passion to claim that there is a second Isaiah or someone else who wrote this after the fact. Because if this was written by Isaiah 150 some years before Cyrus would come on the scene and deliver and defeat the Babylonians and deliver his people, then God is showing and proving that he is indeed the supreme ruler of the universe. And that's exactly what's going on here. Isn't it amazing that we have to do anything? We, we will not receive what God has given to us. It's a hard issue. You could prove anything till you're blue in the face, but until our hearts are changed, we will never accept the truth and bow to it. They are forced to try to get around it rather than to acknowledge that God is truly the Lord. We should find comfort in knowing that, God, that history is God's outworking of his purpose, purpose and his plans. And this should help us understand better one of the most powerful verses of the identity of Jesus. Colossians was written um, in a society that was filled with idols, right? It was in a place that was, that was renowned for its idols, right? Well, listen to what Paul writes about Jesus in Colossians 1, verse 16 through 15 through 17. And read this in light of what we have just looked at, in light of what it means to be God. And tell me what this says about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For him. Everything was created for his purposes. He is directing all of history to fulfill his purpose. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only that, but he's holding everything into existence right now. He created it, he's bringing it to fulfill his purposes, and he's holding it together. You can't get more powerful than that. That is the supreme ruler of the universe. Do you understand what this is saying about God? Do you understand what this is saying about Jesus? And the cross is the greatest example of God being the Lord of history, isn't it? Jesus foretold how many times that he was going to the cross. He was saying, I am in control. I know what's happening. And God, through what appeared to be the the most devastating circumstance that could ever happen, defeated the enemy and brought salvation for his people. And what we see here is if God is in control of such events, then we can trust him with anything. (laughs) God is working out history to fulfill his purposes. So you've watched the contest between God and all the competitors from all the nations. You are a witness of who the true God is. There is no one like him. So there are only two paths you can take, right? You can continue to rebel. You can make your substitutes against God and not submit to him. Or you can bow the knee to God, believe and trust in him and turn to him and repent of your sin and find salvation. The problem is not a lack of evidence, but a heart issue. All who refuse to bow to God will face the judgment of God, of His wrath. 
So bow to God today. Repent and turn to Him. Believe in Him and trust in Him. If you are bowing to the true God, you are in a great place. And I'll leave that for next week. (laughs) There is great comfort for you. But you can see how God brings it out, doesn't he, here? You can understand what God is doing with this contest. But I also want you to think that there is nothing as unthinkable for a believer to do than to bow before an idol. What an incredible thought. But the reality is, you and I struggle, don't you? I struggle with this. Idols are so tempting. But when you think about it, it makes absolutely no sense. But it is a daily struggle. Some of us are in the grips of idolatry right now. And I call on you to repent and turn to God. God is mighty. God is powerful. And He is your good. He is your good. The Bible tells us what to do to flee from it. The Bible says flee from idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14. 1 John 5 verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We are so easily deceived. We so easily think our joy and security is found outside of Christ. Our expectations of Christ are so low. And we forfeit the pleasure that we could find in Him. And instead we find these empty salvations. We substitute all kinds of things for Christ. The Bible tells us to run to Christ instead. Believe in Him. Run to Him. See Him as the greatest, most valuable treasure in the universe. Believe that your joy is in Him. Believe that your security is in Him. That there is nothing more than Christ because that is the truth. You must see Him as your chief good and your chief joy and your chief happiness. He is your greatest treasure. Delight in Him and find security in Him. And know that you worship and bow down to whatever you love and delight in the most. So how do you flee from idols to Christ? My last point here. Every day... Have a contest. Put God on one side and the idols of this world on the other side. And see who is the supreme ruler. Read God's word. (laughs) Look at God's word and look at the supremacy of our God in relationship to the worthlessness of all the idols of this world. Every day have a contest. Look at the character of God versus the character of all the created things and see the supremacy of God, and the worthlessness of idols. Every day, tear down the idols that are so working to rise up within you and look to this God and find the fullness of joy. Let's pray. Dear Father, we love you. Lord, you are great and mighty to save. Lord, what can we say but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thank you for bringing salvation. Thank you for bringing us who are wretches, who are worms, who are nothing at all. Lord, who had rebelled against the living God, who had turned away from you and have looked for salvation in worthless things. How dare we go in that direction? Forgive us, O Lord, for our sin. Forgive us for what we have said about you. Thank you that with you there is great forgiveness. Thank you with you that there is salvation. Thank you with you that there is everything we need. Lord, we need...
to see you high and lifted up and exalted in all your glory. I pray that we would have our minds and hearts open to see you. And I pray that we would bow to you. And I pray that we would experience the joy of what it means of having comfort that is real comfort and joy that is real comfort and a hope that can never be shaken or taken away. Thank you, Lord, for being our supreme God. In Jesus' name, amen.